Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to not just lay on the couch all day reading Chinese sci-fi novels and instead study for his comprehensive exams, which are in like five days. Today I'm going to be rounding off my discussion of environment and urbanism. This episode on a discussion of how processes of urbanism can be seen as something that arises out of environmental changes and how this new kind of highly dense urban environment based on cheap energy affects culture. So I think that the real driver of this is uh, dramatic changes in population density. So one of the big stories of the 18th and the 19th century is that more and more people live in cities, and these cities get increasingly large and dense. This is both absolutely true, so the actual number of people in cities increases, and relatively true. Uh, A greater proportion of the population of advanced economies ends up living in cities. And this urbanism, I think, is a key to understanding Um, how we can link environment and culture. Because on the one hand, it's caused by changes in how humans interact with uh, uh, their natural environments. And also, on the other hand, it changes the environment that most people live their day-to-day lives in. So this increased population density causes what we might think of as Smithian growth, as the increase of division of labor and specialization. There's lots of economists who've identified uh, that this is, you know, kind of just uh, almost socio-mathematically true. As you get a larger market, you get more uh, specialization because there's more people uh in the market who can actually purchase goods and services. Um, So if you have a larger agricultural market, for instance, you're going to get more people specializing in high value crops or or in um, uh, uh, animal goods or or other things like that. And similarly, when you get a large urban catchment area connected with national markets, you can get specializations in jobs and uh, in production. So not only can you get like a single purpose blacksmith, but you get people who, like in Birmingham, are making toys, which are not what we think of as toys, but small ornate metalworks like belt buckles and shoe buckles and knives. You get people not only making toys, but making uh, uh, specifically provisioning large iron objects for the Navy. That's their only job. You get the specialization because of increasing national markets and increasing urban density. Now, also, this creates a cultural change because when more and more people are living in these, you know, diverse, stratified, large and confusing cities, they have to figure out ways of dealing with this city. And so to ease this confusion of the city, people try to find ways of getting cheap information, of establishing trust with one another easily, of making solidarity with one another easily, of finding friends and marriage partners easily. So... To explain this, I'm going to go in three processes. First, I'm going to discuss uh, changes to the food supply. We've talked about this a lot of times before, so I'm going to try to give this a more environmental perspective. Then I'm going to discuss uh, the development of strangers and organizations. And then I'm going to just going to talk for fun about how we can see these changes to urban society through new discussions about clothing. So let's tackle food first. At the root of this change, there's various revolutions in food production. And 
kind of in the backdrop of this is a general slow improvement of the climate after the uh, thermal minimum, uh, the Maunder minimum uh, uh, in the 17th century. So I kind of see the agricultural revolutions of the 18th and 19th century as coming from um, three different processes. Uh, we can boil them down to uh, what some ecological Marxists call uh, the cheaps, cheap energy and cheap labor, but I think it's important to distinguish them clearly at first. The first is um, to get people to work harder. Now, Esther Bozerup, uh, who we've mentioned before in the uh, past shows, in an uh, addendum to Malthus, who always talked about how uh, basically human beings were doomed because population was going to grow faster than people's ability to grow food, Bozrup suggested that that's actually not entirely true. That when food supplies started to constrict, people would find solutions by working harder or by, you know, making new kinds of innovations. And I think that one of the big things that happens in the 18th century is that by various organizational changes, uh, people are able to get farmers to work much harder than they previously would, even not under conditions of immense scarcity. So two big ways that they do this is through capitalist agriculture and slavery. In capitalist agriculture, we usually talk about enclosure movement in Britain, but we don't necessarily need to do so. The big idea is that large landowners start to own most of the arable land, and they don't farm it themselves, they rent it out to entrepreneurial farmers, yeoman farmers, who might then employ agricultural workers. These yeoman farmers have to pay a rent and compete against other yeoman farmers, and so they're under a particular kind of pressure to find new ways of growing things, to put new capital uh, intensive in, uh, uh, additions into their uh, agricultural practices, to drive the people working on their land even harder. And this works. We can point to a bunch of uh, 18th century and 19th century agricultural innovations that come out of this increasing pressure. All of the things that people do in the 18th century that improves agricultural outputs, and agricultural outputs improve by two and a half times over the century, uh, need more effort. Liming and marling needs more physical effort. Uh, making triennial crop rotation needs more effort. This all just takes a ton more planning and a ton more muscle. The second way of getting more agricultural labor before we get into real cheap energy modernity is through slavery. And in that, we it's pretty obvious how you push somebody further along the Bozeropian curve of, you know, high effort. Well, you have to force them to. And this is especially uh, important when you think about the sort of agricultural goods that people wanted. A lot of them were tropical commodities, sugar, coffee, tea, that could not be grown in Europe. And the places that Europeans, especially British people, did grow them had really, really a lot of agricultural land. The problem with that, because it seems great, right? Well, you have tropical groceries that you want and you have a lot of uh, relatively uninhabited uh, land that can grow these tropical groceries. 
Well, the problem with that is that these tropical groceries require a lot of effort to grow. Sugarcane is a notoriously difficult crop to work with. It requires irrigation, constant pruning. It's uh, you know difficult to harvest, and then once harvested, you need to boil it down into sugar, which itself is difficult. Similarly, uh, coffee is is relatively labor intensive, as is as is co- uh, chocolate. If you have a lot of agricultural land, free labor does not want to spend its effort making sugar for the international market. It wants to spend its effort getting, you know, cheap and easy food and living nice. In these sorts of situations, you need slavery to make these tropical commodities. You need to force other people to make them for you. This is why in America and in Russia, you both get uh, semi-slave societies producing agricultural goods for the market. The second big movement uh, is international trade that we've discussed a little bit uh, with the example of slavery. But international trade also helps the agriculture revolution through increasingly increasing specialization. We can see this much clearer once we get into the real era of cheap energy modernity after the world is knit together by steamships and rail. Um, after 1870, you get an international grain market, which destroys a lot of agriculture in Britain. But people don't mind because it is destroyed because you get suddenly the coming online of these vast areas of land that had never been able to come into the world economy before. Ukraine, the American West, uh, these places became the breadbaskets of Europe. Argentinian pampas became the place where beef and leather was made. And these came online because of the world being knit together by railways and steamships. The third big trend is artificial fertilizers. Uh, The first we've discussed here is guano. Um, uh, I I don't want to belabor it because it's just kind of a a silly, it's it's kind of a silly story. In the early 19th century, Alexander von Humboldt discovered off the coast of Peru that Indians had been going off to these islands where seabirds congregated and mining the guano, mining the fossilized bird poop, taking it back to... uh, the mainland and using it to fertilize crops. He sent it back to Europe, sent samples of this guano back to Europe, and they discovered that it was high in nitrogen, which is what made people realize the importance of nitrogen in agriculture. This then spurred, in the 19th century, uh, the international mining of these guano islands, which even led to a, a guano war. It also led to the ability of people to suddenly... Uh, increase the intensity of agriculture, not simply by uh, putting more effort into it, but by adding in external uh, fertilizers. Um, This is the beginning of the Green Revolution that is the reason why we have 8 billion people on Earth. The second part of this is, of course, the development of the Haber-Bosch process, which is a catalytic process that fixes uh, ammonia from the air, uh, and it requires a ton of pressure and heat, but it generates a basically or seemingly limitless supply of fertilizer, which is one of the reasons why we can feed so many people. So in these stories of, of, of increasing agricultural intensity, increasing international trade and specialization, and the technological improvements in artificial fertilizer, we basically have an optimistic pattern of technological development 
that you'll see repeated in a ton of, uh, you know, anti-global warming uh, narratives. They argue, look, capitalism finds a way. People complained, they will argue, in the 60s and 70s about a population bomb that we would somehow not be able to feed the world. And lo and behold, here we are and the world is fed and nobody worries about it. People worried in 2006 about reaching peak oil, but capitalism finds a way and soon figured out how to exploit shale oil, which has meant that we have like another 20-30 year reprieve on gasoline. In the same way, we can expect capitalism to almost inevitably and magically find a way to develop out of resource constraints. And that's, I think, frankly, Esther Buzzrup's point about the Buzzrup curve, that people find ways, uh, if they're allowed to, to get outside of the resource constraints that nature puts upon them. But I, I, I don't find the same comfort in this story. I think that when you look at this story from an environmental perspective, you see that in every step of the way, every step in this process towards more intensive agriculture, people are uh, escaping uh short-term environmental constraints by reaching into non-renewable resources. With intense agriculture, people are ending up exploiting resource frontiers. With international trade, people are like killing other people through slavery. Uh, with artificial fertilizers like guano and the Haber-Bosch process, people are exploit, you know, circumventing short-term uh, lack of nitrogen with uh, using non-renewable uh, uh, resources like guano islands that would eventually be mined to death and coal and oil, which, as we know, are limited and, you know, have 50 to 200 years left of intensive use uh, ahead of them. This is the same way in which when we look at the city just as a city, we can imagine it as standing outside of nature. But if we force ourselves to look at the city as an environmental thing. We see that it's an ecology wrapped up with vast hinterlands that never really ends, that never forces the wilderness outside of it. In the same way, these seemingly, you know, uh, mystical developments where capitalism and science are able to uh, uh, supplant natural limits just seem like more stealing from the future. So in these new dense cities, you get new ways of acting new ways of being, new ways of interacting with each other. And the key one for me is the problem of living with strangers. Uh, I think that this is, you know, I, I focus on this so much because I've lived abroad a lot and I've lived in lots of countries where I don't speak the language. And I think that one of my like big experiences of the city is being at this radical point where I am walking through a city and trying my best to understand it, going off of all of these little cues, watching all of the invisible or, or, or hard to see ways that people negotiate the urban environment without knowing all of the cultural context that allows people to live a full, you know, urban life. I recognize the city not just as a crush of people, not just as an economic thing, but also as something that requires a lot of cultural literacy to, to not make lonely. So 
I see a lot of the people who are moving to the city in the early uh, 18th century and on to the 19th century as having to figure out these these technologies to to limit their loneliness from scratch. They are just like I was when I moved to South Korea or Turkey. They're alone in the city and they need to find a way to not be alone anymore. And these new ways of not being alone anymore uh, have feedback loops where they lead to lower transaction costs between strangers. Um, this combined with the natural uh, specialization of larger populations creates new kinds of work, new kinds of divisions of labor. Uh, we can think of this as the rise of specializations, of, of service sectors, of um, the rise of wage labor. We've talked about all of this before, so I do not need uh, to belabor it. But I do want to mention two things that I haven't really brought to the surface before in my discussions of organizations. I've talked plenty about how organizations allow individuals to trust one another, but I also want to discuss how people get to form trust amongst organizations. So in the 19th century, you get this peculiar process where there's a lot of opportunity for high-profit, capital-intensive developments. Uh, we can think of these as things like railroads. If you are the first person to build a railroad, it's really good for you because everybody has to use it. You get basically a monopoly and you can make lots of money for it. It's so useful you can charge a ton for it. The problem is, is that it requires a lot of investment. It requires lots of money up front to actually build. So you need to get these new kinds of of uh, uh, organizations like limited liability companies and joint stock companies to actually build it. But once you build it, you are promised for a while, uh, you know, a lot of money. The for a while is a really crucial point because all of these capital intensive uh, big business industries suffer from the same problem. They can be outcompeted very easily by other organizations that have access to similar amounts of capital. And all of these infrastructures, railways, uh, water companies, telegraph companies, they get a problem of ruinous competition. Cotton mills. In every single one, the period in which profit can be wrung from the system runs out quite quickly. Ten years, five years, a year. And then these large, heavily capital industries keep on producing because they've run up so much money and they, you know, make sense to, to keep on making stuff even if they're losing money for each individual unit. And so these companies that develop in the 19th century on the backs of the first industrial revolution, they need to solve this the problem of ruinous competition. And they have to do so in a number of ways. One of the big opportunities is cartelization. These organizations making agreements with one another to limit the scope of their competition in order to avoid the ruinous cuts in profit that they might suffer. And this is what happens in Britain. In Britain, you get a number of medium-sized companies that make gentlemen's agreements with one another not to outcompete one another so that they can get each a slice of the pie. This does not happen in America or Germany. In America or Germany, uh, cartelization, for different reasons, never takes off. In America, it's because the cartels are uh, busted by the government and uh, there's no actual way of uh, uh, actually um, constraining cartels. A cartel is a gentleman's agreement and anybody who uh, doesn't follow it uh, gets to reap the whirlwind. 
In Britain, however, you get a much deeper civil society, and so cartel agreements, these gentlemen's agreements, actually end up working. And in this way, we can see the peculiar development of British capitalism in the late 19th and early 20th century, whereby it does not develop large, heavily capitalized, super huge organizations as a result of its strong civil society. Business people can trust one another, so they do not need uh, to outcompete one another. Instead, they make gentlemen's agreements and they rely on the government to regulate their industries. And the last thing I want to talk about, and I'm going to do this quickly, uh, not because it's not important, but because I'm getting tired, <laughs> is clothing. And I think that clothing is another one of these elements of how this new kind of urban society is affecting daily life. And it's affecting daily life because in this uh, environment of incredibly dense social interactions, people need to rely on social heuristics uh, in as ways of figuring out where other people stand and as ways of communicating where they stand. Clothing becomes cheaper, of course. There's this whole story of the rise of cottons, and I've discussed this many, many times. So again, don't need to go too deep into it. But I do want to discuss about how this new world of cottons, this new world of cheap clothing, then creates new forms of cultural expression where people use clothing as uh, you know heuristics about who they are. We can see clothing then as yet another technology that tries to make low-cost information for people about people's social standing. Clothing, along with manners, is a way that people signal to other people that they belong in particular kinds of uh, uh, social, uh, uh, social, you know, clades, social groups, um, and. Once these become established, for example, the three-piece suit as the symbol of a businessman, um, once these become established, then they spread. Uh, we can see this as an example of uh, what organizational sociologists call legitimizing effects. Uh, Neil Fligstein, for example, discusses how uh, businesses create their uh, uh, explanations for corporate control at particular moments. And then once they're created, they perpetuate even though they may not be necessarily economically efficient. We can see this even clearer with the spread of the three-piece suit. All throughout the world, people wear three-piece suits when they want to be identified as serious. Uh, if you look at a member, you know, at people in the G8 or the G20, 95% of them will wear three-piece suits. We can even see this in the feminist politics of today. Hillary Clinton's campaign was, you know, a symbol of it was the pantsuit, the, you know, physical adoption of the, the, the serious business suit by women, right? But the business suit is the symbol of, of middle-class probity, of seriousness, and of hard work, just because that is the clothing that 19th century urban bourgeois men who created capitalism wore. But it spread. It spread along with the other kinds of cultural norms that British capitalism spread along with it. Uh, you can see this even more clearly in the weird holdovers that you get from this kind of sartorial exchange. Um, in certain places in Sumatra, for instance, village headmen would wear the clothing of 17th century Dutch people because that's who was, you know, cool back then. 
Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Story. And if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tweet at me at, at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-A-C-H-E-R. If you tweet me a question, I may answer it on the show. Be careful. You only have a couple episodes left. Uh, thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. I will be back this afternoon where I'm going to be trying to sum up this entire list in one nice, hopefully shorter episode. Uh, We'll see if I can do it.